Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at a passage of Scripture in that chapter, so we want everybody to be able to follow along. These gentlemen have some Bibles. They make their way back. If you need one, just get their attention. And those Bibles are marked at the passage we'll be considering in 1 Peter chapter 1. And you can keep that Bible because we want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. And if you're so inclined to come back in the weeks ahead, bring that with you as we consult it each week to see what God has to say for us and about us. In the year 586 B.C., about 2,500 years ago, the king of the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, sent his troops into Palestine to conquer that area. Then the process, his people took some items from the temple located in Jerusalem. They carted them back to Babylon, which is located in modern-day Iraq. They captured, as part of their plunder, material possessions. But most important, they captured people. Tens of thousands were deported to live in a foreign land with its foreign customs and its foreign gods. This wholesale deportation had been preceded nearly 20 years earlier by a trickle of younger captives. These younger captives had been selected because they were physically in good shape and they had great mental abilities. And they wanted, did the empire, these young men, for service in the new empire. And among those early deportees was Daniel. And he wrote a book in the Bible that bears his name. And that book, in part, describes his experiences living as one of God's chosen people in a pagan land. Now, many of you have had occasion to read the 12 chapters of the book of Daniel. Several of you took a class that we offered for 12 weeks on Wednesday evenings just recently. So you may be familiar with the fact that Daniel faced many challenges in that situation, away from home and in a foreign land. And those challenges included, included the temptation to adopt the mores of the society and to worship the gods of Babylon. One of those gods was Nebuchadnezzar himself, considered to be a god by the Babylonians. Daniel was persecuted because of his refusal to bow down to the king. Famously, he was thrown into a den of powerful and ferocious lions, but he was spared without harm by his more powerful and merciful God. Daniel became prominent in the Babylonian government and would serve the true and living God there into his 80s. The book of Daniel shows us how one can live for God outside of his own country and in the face of false gods and false beliefs and ungodly customs. We call the period in which Daniel lived the time of the Babylonian captivity and those who were, were removed from the promised land to Babylon we call the exiles. But notice what we are called in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter says, I'm writing to, and then he uses these words, elect exiles. Now, like Daniel, if we have a relationship with the true and living God, then we are his chosen people, his elect. 
And like Daniel, we are called exiles, people living away from their home in a strange land. But unlike Daniel, we have not been deported. We became exiles without ever moving an inch. When we came to Christ in faith, we were transformed such that the familiar became strange and those citizens, we became foreigners. And that's why the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship as God's chosen people, as believers in Him, is in heaven, though we sojourn here. And so Daniel shows us how a believer can live for God as a stranger in a foreign land. But Peter shows us how a believer can live for God estranged in his own land. And you know, friends, the world lives according to the rules of the world. In fact, the Bible uses the word world, a translation of a Greek word, cosmos, which means the arrangement of the world around its values and allegiances. And the world in which we live is strange to us because we now have different values and different allegiances. The world lives according to the values and allegiances of this arrangement. And we have been called out of the world in terms of our values, but still live in the world in terms of our location. The world lives according to its set of rules and as a result suffers the consequences and we suffer along with it. Though we now give our allegiance to a different king and a different government, because we live in a world that is suffering the effects of sin, we too then are touched by the fallenness that is the world. Three weeks ago, we were reminded in verses 3 through 5 of First Peter chapter 1 that we are children of the Father, who have a sure inheritance in the future that nothing can impede because we are kept, says verse 5, by the power of God. And then verse 6 says this. Please look with me. In all this, you greatly rejoice. So in all what? Well, in all of what verses 3 through 5 say that we have the promise of God that despite the current state of affairs, we have the hope. That is, in the Bible, the word hope, as I said a few weeks ago when we looked at that passage, is a confident expectation that's based on the resurrection of Jesus and the promises of God that most definitely we will be finally saved, delivered, rescued. But there is in the meantime, and we live in the meantime, And so verse 6 says this. In the meantime, the end of verse 6, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You see, when you live in another land that is not your own, it is inescapable that you will be touched by the realities of the country in which you live. And the reality of life here is that it's filled with assorted suffering. Verse 6 calls it all kinds of trials. And so we've given you an outline then, inserted in your program. I encourage you to take a look at that. Where we want to note, especially from verses 6 and 7 this morning, a number of things about the realities of life now in this foreign land, this land that has become foreign to us since we have come to Jesus. The first of those is that varieties of suffering 
are unlimited. Varieties of suffering are unlimited. The end of verse 6 tells us of all kinds of trials. The varieties are unlimited. Now, the word trial refers to a difficult situation. And that difficult situation, per the end of verse 6, can be of all sorts, of all types. It can be sickness. It can be financial hardship. It can even be a personal relationship. And these come to all of us because it is part of living in a fallen world. You remember the difficulty that Job endured. And the name that the book in your Bible that bears his name is all about the suffering that he endured. And in the midst of that suffering, in chapter 5, Job says this truism, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. So if you're going to live in this country, which all of us do, and by that I mean the world and all of its nations, including where we are, if we're going to live according to this arrangement, then we're going to be caught in the consequences of the world's values. And part of those consequences, the Bible says, is difficulty, disease, and death, and financial hardship. And that will affect every last one of us, including those to whom Peter wrote. And as a result of that, then, you have heard me often say, if you've been around for any length of time, that all of us are in one of three circumstances. That we are either right now in a trial, or that we have recently emerged from a trial, or you're fixing to go into a trial. Because that's life in a fallen world. It is full of all sorts of trouble. And as a result of that, dear friends, what we need to do is learn how to live in the midst of difficulty. Rather than waiting, as we are all too often tempted to do, waiting until the current trial passes so that we can really get on with life. Do you understand that difficulty and trial in all of their variations are part of living in a fallen world and therefore the thing that you're going through or just came out of are fixing to go into, this is life for us right now. And so we don't say to ourselves, as soon as I get out of this thing, I'll be able to serve God. God, as we're going to see, tells us, serve me in the midst of the difficulty. And in fact, I, your God, have a purpose for that trial, those trials in your life. We'll see that in a bit. We sometimes measure blessedness <clears throat> by how smoothly things go for us. But better for us is for us to think about what it is that God is looking to accomplish in the midst of trials and not simply look at the good times as His hand of blessing. Did you know that better than we, friends, have suffered more than we ever will? And though all suffering is due to sin, our individual suffering is not necessarily the result of our personal sin, but rather is our sovereign God's way of accomplishing ultimately good ends in our lives that we will see in just a bit. So if it's not because of something I've done, why is it that God allows these trials, these difficult circumstances in my life? <clears throat> That's something that Peter sets out to answer for us, and we'll look at it together. But the first point that Peter makes for us is what I've said in your outline, that varieties of suffering are unlimited. Secondly, all suffering is unwanted. All suffering is unwanted. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I'm good. 
<clears throat> all suffering is unwanted. It says in verse number 6, In all this you greatly rejoice. Now again, in all what? Well, the promises of verses 3 through 5. But notice very carefully. If you, read, if you don't read verse 6 carefully, you can get the idea that we rejoice because we're suffering. In all this you greatly rejoice. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that we're suffering. And many people misread the Bible that way. The Bible does teach, as we're going to see, that we can have joy. We can rejoice in the midst of suffering. There's no doubt about that. But we do not rejoice because we're suffering. Suffering is, by its definition, unwanted. All suffering is unwanted. We do not desire trial. It's, by definition, hardship. And so in verse 6, Peter contrasts the rejoicing, the, the having the presence of joy in our lives, with the suffering. When he says, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. See, in this you greatly rejoice. In what? The promises of our inheritance in verses 3 through 5. But in the meantime, as you rejoice in those promises, you do so in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trial. So we're not glad, and none of us should be glad, that we're in the midst of difficult circumstances. But we can rejoice in the midst of those circumstances. The Bible tells us famously in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And to emphasize it, Paul who wrote it says, I will say it again, rejoice. Now he says that and then goes on to say, many of you know the passage Verse number 6, do not be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. And then he goes on later to say, beginning in verse number 11, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. And then there is this verse that many of us have in needlepoint, you know, and a plaque on our wall somewhere. I can do all things through Christ. And that's great. That is a marvelous verse. But remember the context. The context is the verses that precede. I've learned what it is to be hungry and to be full, to be in plenty and to be in want. I can do all things through Christ. I can, in the midst of suffering, rejoice, and I will say it again, rejoice, and not be anxious about anything. That's what I can do through Christ who gives me strength. So what is this rejoicing then, about which Paul speaks in Philippians 4 and about which Peter speaks in verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 1, when he says, in all of this you greatly rejoice. You've heard me define joy a working definition of joy in Scripture this way. Joy is this. It is an abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life. An abiding sense of delight. You know, I may not, the circumstances I may not like, often I don't like. It's living in a fallen world. It's all of the stuff that happens. It's all the shrapnel that we get hit with in the spiritual battle that is going on in the world. I may not often like my circumstances, but in the midst of those circumstances, I can still have this abiding, ever-present sense of delight that I know that despite all that's going on, and in fact, God is going to use what's going on 
as his work in my life. Joy, then, is this sense, an abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life. And so Peter tells us varieties of suffering are unlimited. And all suffering is by its very nature unwanted. Then he teaches us a third thing, that Christian suffering is temporary. Christian suffering is temporary. Now you'll see in a moment why it is that I specify and have you fill in the blank as Christian suffering is temporary. You see, everybody suffers because we all live in this same world, Christian and non-Christian alike. But the good news for the Christian is that Christian suffering is temporary. And so verse 6 says, again, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief. doesn't mean that our particular suffering, whatever form it takes in your life, whatever is going on in your life right now, doesn't mean that your particular form of suffering will be brief from a lifetime perspective. We may have a debilitating thing, a challenge that we might have for our entire natural lifetimes. So when Peter says it's for a little while, it's from the eternal perspective, that it is indeed temporary. But notice this promise is only for the Christian, that it's temporary. Remember, this is all addressed to the elect exiles, verse 1. It is to those for whom the promises of verses 3 through 5 hold. Then the suffering that we go through is is temporary. Christian suffering is temporary. But hear this, there will be suffering as long as the cause of suffering has not been remedied. And what is the remedy ultimately for the suffering that is in the world? According to the Bible, it is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus that Jesus has died to free us, as you heard me say in the pastoral prayer, from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, one day from the very presence of sin. That is all accomplished by the death of Jesus on the cross. But those who have not availed themselves of the payment that Jesus made on the cross to end the cause of suffering will continue to suffer. And that is why the Bible teaches that there is a place called hell. And I don't like to talk about it. But who cares what I like to talk about? The important thing is what has God said? And if God says it, whether I like it or not, and when I say I don't like it, I believe it fully. It's simply, it's unpleasant to think that there is a place of suffering. And that suffering will go on as long as the remedy for sin is not availed and people have one opportunity in this life the Bible teaches to avail themselves of God's remedy for sin. And if that does not happen, then suffering is not temporary as it is for the Christian, but it will remain forever. Let me just stop here long enough to say, dear friend, do you have a relationship with God through Jesus? Are you an elect exile? Are you one for whom the promises of verses 3 through 5 hold? And therefore, the suffering that all of us face is indeed temporary for you. And if that is not the case for any, any of us here, then at the end of our time together, we will do as we do virtually every week. We will have a time to bow ourselves before God 
And you can receive the payment that Jesus made for you personally so that the, the punishment that he took and absorbed on your behalf, though he did not deserve it, though I was the one who deserved it, he took it for me, and therefore the remedy for sin has been accomplished, and the suffering will have an end, will be temporary for you. We'll offer you that opportunity at the end of our time together. So varieties of suffering are unlimited. Suffering is by its very nature unwanted. Christian suffering, and only Christian suffering, is temporary. But then I want you to notice, fourthly, that Christian suffering is productive. It's productive. I've been saying all along that God has a purpose in these trials that He allows into our lives. And that's what I mean then in this fourth point, that Christian suffering seeks to produce something in our lives. We can have joy, we can rejoice, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, as Peter says in verse 6 of this opening chapter, we can have joy in the midst of our suffering because of what we know. And we know this, we know that God is sovereign. God is on the throne in the midst of all of our circumstances, all of our trials, and all of our suffering. The reason, the basis reason that I can, you can have joy in the midst of suffering is because of what you know and what you know if you're a believer is that God is sovereign over our trials. That's why verse 6 says this. You may have, now notice this, had to suffer. One translation speaks of the trials as necessary. The The idea is that these trials have purpose in our lives. Some of you familiar with the use of the word random today, you know, where young people especially, I hear them say, that's random. You know, when I hear it is I hear it from Laney and Annie, like whenever I speak. (laughs) You know, so daddy says something and they say, daddy, that was random. It's just sort of doesn't fit into whatever they're thinking when I blurt out whatever I'm thinking. But that's the way we can often think about this stuff that happens in our lives, that it's random. But from a believing perspective, friends, there's not a maverick molecule in God's universe. There's nothing that happens that is random. There is nothing that happens outside of His purview and His control and His purposes. And in the life of the believer, those purposes are good purposes. God allows these these trials, this suffering, to produce, to be productive. Our trials are not random occurrences in the universe. And so commentator Thomas Schreiner said it this way, the idea is that the sufferings of believers' experience are not the result of fate or impersonal forces of nature. Rather, God is working out His plan even in our anguish. Now, what is the purpose that we know is at work? We know that God's at work. We know that God's sovereign. What is the purpose that we know is at work? Paul, who wrote the passage we looked at earlier in Philippians chapter 4, also wrote a book called Romans. In Romans chapter 5, this is what he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, notice the connection again between joy in the midst of difficulty, because we know. What do we know? We know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. 
And so God says, I have these good designs in the midst of the difficulty, all of the difficulty that my people endure. Trial, as I've already defined, is a difficult situation, a difficult circumstance. Now let me refine it just with one further word. A trial is, yes, a difficult situation, but it is a difficult external situation. It is something outside of me that comes at me. So a trial is a difficult circumstance, but it's a difficult external circumstance. Now hear this, whose internal effect depends on my response. A trial is a difficult external situation, circumstance, with which I'm confronted, whose internal effect depends on how it is that I respond. And so in all of these external difficulties that come at me, living in a fallen world, God intends good. God intends that the effect will be internally a good one on you and on me, as Paul has said in Romans 5, that it will develop character and that character will develop hope. God intends good, but Satan seeks to use the difficulty for an occasion to sin. Do you remember this when we went through the book of James some months ago? I noted in James chapter 1 that the same Greek word in your New Testament most of you know your New Testament was translated into English from Greek. The same Greek word in your New Testament is sometimes translated trial and sometimes translated temptation. Same word. So what's the difference between a trial and a temptation? Well, they both involve external situations, circumstances, things that come at us. The difference is the intention of God and the intention of Satan. And whether or not God's intention will be realized or Satan's intention will be realized depends upon our response to it. And so James says this in chapter 1, I remind you, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Again, the connection between joy, rejoicing, and, and trials. When tempted, no one should say. Now when it says trials in that second line, and then says tempted in the third line. That's the same word, trials and tempted. So when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when dragged away by his own evil desire and enticed. Now here's why James had to clarify that. Because the same external circumstance is design, that is designed by God to produce good things in the life of his people is designed by Satan to become an occasion for temptation to sin. The same circumstance can be a trial to one man that results in character and to another a temptation that leads to sin. And the difference is in how I respond. So you think about the thing you thought of when I started this message. He's talking about suffering. You had something in mind. Maybe you had someone in mind. That this is the suffering that I'm going through right now. And ask yourself, how am I responding to that? God intends it for good, absolutely. God can only have good intentions. By His very nature, because God is good, it is impossible for Him to have other than good intentions. And God can only have good intentions for those who are related to Him. 
But whether those good intentions will be realized depends on our response internally to the external circumstance that God allows into our lives. God has designed it to be productive. What does it produce? I have in your outline. Suffering, these trials, are designed by God to produce evidence of faith. Evidence of faith. You'll remember that the word faith in your New Testament is the same Greek word for belief. So if you want to substitute belief there, you could do that. The NIV has translated in our passage faith, and so I've used that here. But it produces evidence of belief. That is, just like James' purpose in the five chapters of his letter is to challenge us as to whether or not what we claim to believe is genuine and real, Peter is saying here that these trials now that God brings into our lives help us to see the authenticity of what we claim to believe. So I can attend church, we can come on Sunday, and we can say, I believe God is sovereign and God is good. But whether or not I really believe that will be shown when I'm in a trial, right? And God has designed these trials to produce something, one of which is evidence of faith. Verse 7 says, These have come. What? These what? These trials. Spoken of in verse 6. These have come so that, for this purpose, that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so God is telling us through Peter very clearly, I have a purpose in the trial's the difficulties that I allow into your life. And one of those purposes is to prove, to test and to demonstrate the genuineness of what you claim to believe, the genuineness of your faith. And it's compared to gold. Gold, as you know, goes through a refining process. And it is heated so that all the impurities are removed. And God is saying, I'm seeking to remove all the impurities from your statement of faith from what you claim to believe. In this, I'm seeking to show you impurities in what you believe so that your faith is refined and becomes pure. In verse 7, Peter tells us that our faith is of greater worth than gold, which perishes. And so we think of gold and its lasting value, and certainly compared to other material things, it has that, but it is a material commodity. It perishes. But what we believe, our faith, remains and therefore is of greater worth than gold. Suffering is designed by God. Hear this. To get rid of everything but God. To remove all the impurities and get rid of everything but God in order to show that we really believe that God is enough. And so I ask you as I ask myself, do you believe that? Is God enough? See, we want a God who is sort of God. We don't want a God who's like too much God. We want Him to be there when we want Him. We want Him to be there when we call. But God is seeking to refine us such that He is enough for everything. 
One man wrote years ago, I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. And think about the absurdity. But isn't that what we do? I want just enough God for him to fulfill what I think I need, as if I know better what I need than he does. Suffering is designed by God to remove impurities from what we claim to believe so that all that is left of God and that God is enough. It's designed to remove the false beliefs that every one of us has and remove the false aspects of our faith. You know, you wouldn't think it in a place like this, in a church like this, that believes what we do. But the truth is, practically speaking, many of us have bought into a prosperity gospel that says that God needs to make me comfortable and God needs to fix my suffering. But God is saying, I'm using that suffering for you to see that the thing, in fact, the one that you need most is me. Peter compares true God is enough faith with gold. And I ask you, friends, which is more valuable to you? God or your stuff? God or my material, temporary, current circumstances? It produces, it is designed to produce evidence of faith. And then I say lastly in your outline. This suffering, these trials that God allows, our sovereign God allows into our lives, has the good end of producing, yes, evidence of faith, but also worship of God. Because verse 7 says, the result ultimately is this. End of verse 7, the praise, praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The last book of your Bible, the 66th book in your Bible, is called Revelation. But the very first verse in the book of Revelation, the very first line starts this way, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the making known of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. That's what the end game is. The making known of Jesus so that the world that he made sees him in all of his glory. And that's what Peter is now saying here. That Jesus is going to be revealed at the end. But in the meantime, God is removing all of the impurities, showing the evidence of true faith that we really believe that God is enough, only God is left. And then when we come to the end, we will bow down before Jesus, the one who is enough, when he makes himself known in all of his glory to us and the entire world. But I ask you, friends, again, as I ask myself, what makes us think that we will bow at Jesus' feet then if we bow at our material possessions now? Our behavior in trials will bring glory to God at the revelation of Jesus. 
praise and honor and glory, they're not distinct things. Peter just piles them up together to emphasize the worthiness and the greatness of God. Faith that perseveres in trial is honoring to the one in whom the faith is placed. Particularly at his revelation at the end when the faith is seen. When we see him and our faith is seen to have not been in vain and to have not been useless. Because on earth, in the midst of trial, God was enough. You know, we think that we're worshiping God when we thank God. You know, I'm a very thankful person. We might say, I I just thank God for everything I have. I thank God for everything He allows me to do. And thankfulness certainly should be a characteristic of a believer. But do not make the mistake of thinking that thankfulness is the same as worship. You see, when a waiter waits on me and does good service, I say thank you. But I don't worship the waiter. And Jesus desires and deserves more than just thanks for giving me the stuff I want. Jesus says, I am to be worshipped because I am your God. And I'll remove all of the junk in the fires of affliction so that all that is left is me, and I, and I alone, am the one that you worship. And when we fail to do that as believers, you know how we're acting? We're acting the way Romans chapter 1 says, the pagan world acts. They worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Trials are designed so that all that is left is God. And friend, friends, it is best for us to practice that in those interim times, short though they may be, when we're not suffering or perhaps not suffering to the extent that we have or, or, or perhaps will. Using the gifts of God for God rather than confusing the gifts with the giver. And so in conclusion, what should we do? Romans chapter 1 and verse 5 speaks of the obedience that comes from faith. Remember, what's being tested here by God in these trials is our faith, what we claim to believe. Then Romans chapter 1 and verse 5 speaks of the obedience that comes from faith. So if I believe, if I have faith, if I really believe the things that I claim, then it will follow that I'll obey. So in the midst of your suffering and my suffering, do it God's way. The suffering itself may not be removed, but it will please God and will prove the genuineness of our faith. Understand, secondly, that joy and grief can exist at the same time. In the midst of difficulty, I can still have this abiding sense of delight that God is at work in my life. And thirdly, remember this. The God who is sovereign is the God who is also gracious. The grace of God is not seen in happiness in the midst of it or a lack of tears or a lack of sorrow. The grace of God in suffering is not seen in alleviation of the suffering. It's seen in the fact that I don't give up my faith in suffering. And in fact, to the contrary, my faith is strengthened in the midst of the suffering. Some of you know the name William Cooper, the Christian poet, songwriter. He wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. 
But what you may not know is that William Cooper, uh, he's also the guy who coined variety as the spice of life. But what you may not know is that he suffered from sometimes almost debilitating depression. At one point, he was committed to an asylum. And yet, in the midst of the fire and the furnace of suffering, he was able to see his way clear to what he really believed about God. He wrote a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Let me read for you the lyrics of that song. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, upholding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Here's what I'd like for you to take home then, as we say in your outline. Christians are not immune from difficulty, but they can be free from despair and full of delight. Christians are not free from difficulty. But we can be free from despair and have an abiding sense of delight that God is at work in our lives. But only Christians can have that. So we're going to give you an opportunity, as promised, to become a Christian, to place your faith, your belief in Jesus. Well, how do I do that? You see, friends, in all the stuff that we chase, other than God, other than Jesus, we sin. Realize you're a sinner. You could define sin a lot of ways. Sin is falling short of the character of God, ultimately. But we express that sin in our chasing after things and persons other than God. The Bible says that you and I are sinners. And there is a penalty that must be paid for that sin in order for us to be able to have a relationship with the God that we've abandoned. But Jesus died for your sin so that you don't have to die forever because of your sin. So repent. It's a churchy word, but it's simple in terms of what it means. It means, I'm going to go your way, God, not my way. It's a change of mind about myself and about God that leads to a change of life. I'm going to follow you, God. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life by having faith, believing who he is and what he did. Who is he? He's God. He became man. What did he do? He lived the life that you should have lived and he died the death that you deserved. And you receive him by asking him, Lord, forgive me, make me your child. I believe, Lord Jesus, that you are God and that you did for me what I could not do for myself. Forgive my sin. Let's bow together.
Father, we thank you for these sacred moments together looking into your word. We thank you, Lord, that scripture is realistic about life in a fallen world. We thank you, Lord, that you have shown us what sin is in our own lives and how the consequences of sin affect us. We thank you, God, that in the midst of even all of that, you are on the throne. And you design the circumstances of our lives to make us better rather than bitter. Lord, only we can know that comfort as Christians who have a relationship with you. So we thank you for that comfort, for that knowledge that allows us to persevere in the midst of difficulty. I pray that right now your spirit is moving on the hearts of some who came into this room and did not know you as personal Savior and had not bowed before you as their Lord. I pray that they are doing that right now, that you are drawing them out of the world into yourself so they can be glad warriors, elect exiles, strangers in this foreign land until you take us home. We will give you the glory and the honor and praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.